millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and tonight we're going to look um, a little bit about the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Um, If that sounds familiar to you as it might be to some listeners, uh, this is the uh, secret Anglo-French and and also Russian, but the Russians are sort of forced out um, later on, um, compact to divide the Ottoman Empire. Um, that is um, devised in 1915 uh, as the product of secret discussions between the uh, British and the French Uh, and it is uh, created um, and it contradicts all agreements that the British give to the Arabs um, about the, the future of the Arab parts of the Ottoman Empire um, the British um, have a, a habit during the First World War in the Middle East of making multiple promises um, with little intention of keeping any of them. Um, so we're going to look tonight at A Line in the, in the Sand by James Barr, which is an, an excellent history of the kind of cutthroat relationship between the British and the French um, in the first half of the 20th century. 
uh, in the Middle East. It is followed up, if you, I've mentioned it before, by Lords of the Desert, which is the kind of equally brutal backstabbing relationship between the British and the Americans in the second half of the 20th century, uh, motivated by the desire for Middle Eastern oil. Okay, so we're going to start by looking at the character of Sir Mark Sykes, who was the British diplomat and one of the few kind of uh, Arabists in the um, uh, in, in, in uh, the British government at the time in, in 1915. So here we're reading from the chapter Very Practical Politics in A Line in the Sun by James Barr. James Barr writes... Late in the morning of December the sixteenth uh, of December, 1915, a promising young politician named Sir Mark Sykes hurried into Downing Street for a meeting. The Prime Minister had summoned the 36-year-old baronet to advise him and his war cabinet on how they might resolve a row about the future of the Ottoman Empire that looked as if it could tear Britain's fragile alliance with France apart. By extraordinary luck, Sykes put it afterwards, I was allowed to make a statement to the War Council. What he said was to shape the modern Middle East. Sykes' surprise at being called to number 10 was genuine, for he had managed to carve himself a role as the government's chief advisor on Middle Eastern matters in the space of just four years. Elected as a Conservative Member of Parliament for the Yorkshire Port of Hull in 1911, he staked his claim to being an expert on the Ottoman Empire in his maiden speech. It is um, In it, he described a recent visit to North Africa, still then in Ottoman hands, and declared that he believed a strong and united Turkish empire was, an important, uh, was as important to English commerce and strategy now uh, as it had been in Disraeli's time 30 years before. When the war broke out in 1914, the Ottomans had joined Germany to fight Britain and France, and Sykes had been forced to change his mind. So what Sykes was making reference to was the the kind of the mid nineteenth century Eastern question, the idea um, of what was it in Britain's best strategic interests to do in the face of a weakening Ottoman Empire. Um, the uh, idea that um, a weakening Ottoman Empire would always benefit a strengthening uh, and more belligerent Russian Empire um, was some was an article of faith for the conservatives um, who, whilst having no no love for the Ottoman Empire at all, were happy to support it. Um, Disraeli particularly, and this was uh, it was Queen Victoria's view that this should happen as well. Um, when uh, William Gladstone, the Liberal Prime Minister, um, complained about the Balkan outrages, the uh, Bulgarian outrages, where um, uh, Bulgaria in 1876 um, rose up against the Turks um, and brutal massacres ensued. The Turkish baz- uh, Bashi Bazouk uh, mercenaries burned their way across uh, Bulgaria. Um, the this this sort of enra- en- enraged um, Russian pan-nationalist uh, pan pan Slavist passions, and was about to result in uh, the Russians entering a war which they do in eighteen seventy seven and win it in eighteen seventy eight uh, against the Ottoman Empire. 
um, the it was Disraeli's view that Britain should continue to support the Ottomans no matter what horrendous things they had done. Gladstone said, you know, this was, this was rotten and immoral and there were Christians being slaughtered uh, in uh, in the Balkans. Um, but the but British policy was uh, unwavering. Always, always prop up the Ottoman Empire. Keep this sort of a zombie empire uh, on its last legs going as long as you can do. So Sykes was a kind of an echo of that um, several decades later uh, and the in the intervening time uh, particularly in the 1890s the Kaiser had gone to great lengths to woo the um, uh, woo the the, the sultans uh, of the Ottoman Empire and then the young Turks who uh, from the, the CUP who took power after 1908 um, and the this obviously involved like heavy modernization of the Turkish army. I mean, there's I mean a, a couple of podcasts I've shared before about the shock that the British and the French have when they suddenly realise that the Turks aren't necessarily in military terms the sick man of Europe any longer, and they really can fight quite quite successfully. To the meeting with the War Council, Sykes brought a map and a three-page precis of what he was about to say. This document survives amongst the paperwork he left when, three years later, he died from influenza at the age of just 39. His distinctive, muscular but juvenile handwriting gives it the look of a schoolboy's last-minute revision notes, but it was by far the most significant thing he'd ever wrote. From the Tour de Horizon, it sketched. From the Tour de Horizon, it sketched, helped him convince the cabinet that they must urgently reach agreement with France on how they should divide the Ottoman Empire between them, and that he was the man to mastermind the deal. Mark Sykes is an interesting character because the uh, other um, Arabists who knew him. Um, didn't really rate his understanding or knowledge of the Middle East at all. And it it looks more and more as if he had a kind of a, a, a bluffer's knowledge of the region um, and was able to convince the war cabinet that he was the person who could um, shape the Middle East in Britain's interests. And you find that the history of British imperialism is chock full of these sort of um, blagger characters who sometimes have a degree of knowledge, but in other kind, other times, their self-confidence outshines their abilities. This, this is the kind of the, uh, in some ways, the dark genius of the uh, the, the, the the British public school system is to create those who have uh, extraordinary confidence despite uh, evidence to the contrary. He certainly is a capable fellow with plenty of ideas, but at the same time painstaking and careful, one minister reported afterwards of Sykes. But in truth, the genial MP was less uh, less expert on this subject than he led the cabinet to believe. Sykes's reputation as an authority on the Middle East rested on a series of books that he had written on the region. The, la- the latest being a two-inch thick tome that he had published earlier that year. The Caliph's Last Heritage, 
was part of a history of the rise of Islam as a political force, part dyspeptic diary of his pre-war travels to the Ottoman Empire. Spiced with Arabic phrases and comical dialogue, the book implied a deeper understanding than its author truly had. Sykes did not try to puncture this illusion. That day he left the, primer, uh, the Prime Minister and his colleagues under the impression that he was fluent in both Arabic and Turkish. In fact, he could speak neither. The book and its author's breezy self-assurance were both the fruit of an extraordinary upbringing. Sykes had been born into a dysfunctional landed Yorkshire family and made his first visit to the Middle East with his parents, the eccentric Satan and alcoholic Lady Jessica, at just the age of 11. Satan, obsessive about church architecture and the maintenance of his body at a, cons- at a constant temperature and milk pudding, was 64. Lady Jessica, who was barely half his age, was having an affair with their tour guide. Mark Sykes was their only child. The year was 1890. The Sykes family visited Egypt, which Britain had seized from the Ottomans eight years earlier, and then went to to Jerusalem and to Lebanon, uh, still in Turkish hands. For Sykes, the sense of travelling back in time was mesmerising. It was also a distraction from his parents' happy marriage, which culminated in 1897 with a toe-curling case that revealed their respective peccadilloes. During the period, Sykes escaped to the Middle East repeatedly, first as an undergraduate, then as a young honorary attaché at the British Embassy in the Ottoman capital, Constantinople. There's a fascinating biography of um, St. John Philby, who was the father of Kim Philby. Kim Philby is uh, obviously the the great uh, MI6, um, uh, Soviet model MI6 and a great British traitor. But St. John Philby was a um, uh, an Arabist like um, uh, Sykes and to some degree kind of contemporary at the time though St. John Philby was far, far more accomplished and um, uh, far more of the, the kind of the, the, the genuine Victorian gentleman explorer. Anyhow, there are really interesting parallels between the um, the story, the kind of the, the the backstory, the family history of St. John Philby and, and Mark Sykes, of these uh, broken families producing uh, sons who. Um, lack that kind of basic care, that nurture, um, and these these broken families that exist on the kind of the the peripheries of Britain's ruling classes, um, and the the way in which Victorians and Edwardians romanticised and fantasised uh, about the Islamic world, not just the the the, the Middle East, but a, you know Islamic India. Uh, and the way they kind of projected their own fantasies onto it, um, in in some ways, is a a product of these uh, um, peculiar aristocratic families. Where, um, uh, as it says here, that you know Sykes escaped to the Middle East repeatedly to get away from all of this. Recounting how he had shot the lock off the uh, door of an abandoned caravan caravanessary so that he could stay there overnight, he gained a reputation as an intrepid or rather free-spending tourist. When he bumped into another traveller, Gertrude Bell, in Jerusalem 
and admitted what he had uh, what, what, what he'd paid for horses. She made a mental note to arrange her journey so as not to fall in with him. Bless him. For if I know the east, prices will double all uh, along the route, all along his route. Like many travel writers, Sykes liked to pretend that he was going into unknown territory. He chose his routes, he claimed, by following his nose over the portions of the map, which are the whitest or most uh, rich in notes of interrogation and dotted lines. The sight of other Europeans spoiled the view. While Bell, like many other contemporaries, found Sykes most amusing, Sykes was much less pleased to come across Miss Bell. Confound the silly chattering windbag of conceited, gushing, flat-chested man-woman, globe-trotting, rump-wagging, blethering ass, he ranted to his wife. The Ottoman Empire was by then going downhill, as Sykes had put in his first parliamentary speech. After the Sultan's government went bankrupt in 1876, the British government had abandoned a 50-year policy of supporting the Ottomans' integrity and independence as a bulwark against other powers' ambitions. In 1878, Britain seized, the, seized Cyprus and four years later Egypt and the Suez Canal in order to secure a route to India. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. As the canal turned out to be a major artery for Britain's growing eastern commerce, Egypt became the fulcrum of the British Empire. So, just to, to kind of take a pause there, um, what is the what is the importance of talking about this one individual, Sir Mark Sykes, um, and his backstory? Well, it, I I'm always wary of this idea that history hinges on individuals. It almost certainly doesn't history is the the product of um you know large economic and social and structural changes um by by and large but at certain points we reach uh, you know certain moments of of kind of vulnerability 
And when I say vulnerability, vulnerability to the, uh, the role of, it, of individuals, essentially Sykes is summoned to see Lloyd George after Lloyd George says, knows that something major has to be agreed with France over the future of the Middle East, over the future of oil that's been discovered there. And he simply says, who knows about this stuff? And the answer is, well, not many people. And actually, not really Mark Sykes. But he's there in the moment with a smattering of knowledge and a smattering of experience. And he can put forward a convincing case as to what should happen. And these are the moments where uh, history takes particular directions. But it's, it's the pressures of war and empire and uh, economics and rivalries that give the likes of Sykes um, a momentary opportunity. So on to talk about Egypt. Well, British investors took what they um, took what was left of their money and ran, following the Ottoman default. The French moved in to replace them. The French already enjoyed significant prestige within the Ottoman Empire through their religious institutions, which ran dozens of schools that were better and more popular than the Ottoman equivalents. In an attempt to take advantage of the Turks' decrepitude, they now bought up most of the Ottoman government debt, gambling more than their own government's annual in- annual revenue on the, on the Ottoman survival. But the young Turks, who seized power in a coup in 1909, failed to stop the rot. They lost Libya and the empire's remaining European possessions in the Balkans three years later. The the Ottoman Empire's centre of gravity now shifted significantly eastwards. Besides Turkey itself, the Ottomans now controlled only Syria, Palestine, Iraq and the coastal fringes of the Arabian Peninsula. Of course, you know, the the centre of um, the Arabian Peninsula was largely impenetrable to the Turks until they built trains across it. And yet, despite the Ottomans' decay, the Sultan remained um, in, uh, remained influential across the widest uh, um, the, the widest Sunni Muslim world as the Caliph or the successor to the Prophet Muhammad and the guarantee and the guardian of the three holiest cities in Islam: Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. This was the Caliph's last heritage, but even there the Ottomans faced discontent from increasingly self-confident Arabs who wanted a great auto- greater autonomy or even independence from the dynasty that had ruled them for 400 years. Sykes's travels throughout the empire coincided with this era and not surprisingly, in his latest book, he portrayed the Ottoman as moribund. So the, the, the writings of most kind of Victorian colonialists and Victorian sort of Arabists or, or Orientalists um, had a, a sort of th- this kind of dual contradictory sort of relationship with the, the, the subjects they observed, um, obviously not meeting them in, in any kind of meaningfully equal way. Uh, they viewed them as you know, fascinating and yet kind of something that appalled them as well. To reinforce his argument, he included sublime descriptions of the squalor that he encountered in famous cities of the Ottomans' eastern lands. In Aleppo, a city where ruinous modern buildings clung for support to ancient and more solid edifices, 
edifices. He found that dirt and disease reigned in its crowded and crumbling bazaars. Decay and poverty were the most notable characteristics. In Damascus, he was assailed by packs of filthy dogs, ragged soldiers, yelling muleteers, um, greedy uh, antique sellers, and dismayed by the ill-appointed hotels, tough mutton and rank butter. He saved his deepest opprobrium for Mosul, a foul nest of corruption, vice, and disorder and disease, in which the new houses are as ramshackle, as insanitary, as stinking as the old, and the, uh, the, ugly, the old as ugly, uninteresting and repulsive as the new. The souks there were ankle-deep in decayed guts and offal, and kennels run with congealed blood and stinking dye and sluggish and iridescent streams, nauseous to behold and abominable in odour. So th- this is the 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 language of the kind of the colonial e- explorer really, who is stepping outside of what they conventionally see as civilization, and looking with kind of abject horror, uh, but sort of a, a kind of a fascination at the same time at the Arab world, um, and re- writing for the benefit of uh, of a British audience. So I would imagine a very small British audience, but a British audience nonetheless. Sykes sounded appalled, sounded appalled, and yet in truth he did not want this colourful, decaying society to disappear, depriving him of the glimpse into the medieval world it gave him on his holidays. As the influence of jockeying foreign powers began to manifest itself, he was delighted that the dividers... T-square and drawing board of the French engineer um, have been able to crush out the original the originality of the illiterate Syrian Arab. This is, these are his words. He ignored the fact that the railways which the Ottomans were building with German help were making cheap travel a possibility for Arabs um, whose horizons had previously been limited by how far they could walk or ride. Instead, he claimed the steam train had brought not a single virtue and only a host of new vices that included alcohol, dirty pictures, phonographs and drinking saloons. How a postal service, the telegraph, the railway, um, a thriving newspaper industry and growing literacy were about to change the Arab world forever. He either could not see or did not want to see. So there we have um, Sykes. Uh, and his his recollections of, of the um, the Arab world, just on the uh, on the eve of the First World War, as he is suddenly perhaps not quite aware that uh, of of the growing German influence um, in the Middle East, and the fact that modernity was about to convulse the 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 Arab world uh, in ways that couldn't previously have been imagined there's a, a previous interesting point um, about the um, uh, the holy sites in the um, in in the Ottoman Empire and in the uh, the Islamic world in fact um, in his uh, really amazing book on the Balfour Declaration Jonathan Schneer writes about um, uh, the um, Sharif Hussein of Mecca um, and who is the the king essentially the the ruler of the Hejaz which is on the eastern seaboard of um, Arabia and Sharif Hussein of Mecca um, rebels obviously in 1916 
you know, if you've ever watched the movie Lawrence of Arabia, he rebels in 1916 against the Ottomans. But the argument that Jonathan Schneer puts forward is that he rebels against the Ottomans because of modernization in the Ottoman Empire. That the the Sharif uh, Hussein of Mecca had never really accepted um, the the modernization um, uh, of the empire that occupied him and the uh, diminished role of Islam in the new uh, the, the the new more more modern not necessarily particularly secular but more modernized empire. Um, and he, the the revolt was less about you know um, fighting for Arab freedoms, and more a kind of a reaction, you know, reactionary kind of counter revolt against the um, the forces of modernization, which were in the eyes of Sharif Hussein kind of oppositional to uh, the, the the kind of the, the the proper workings of of traditional Islam. Sykes allowed his propositions to run away with his judgment, wrote one critic. But beyond academic circles, the shortcomings of his book, in particular its underestimation of the Turks, were largely overlooked. That, of course, you know, these underestimations of the Turks and the belittling of them, um, uh, when kind of extrapolated that into a kind of a wider intellectual culture in pre-war Britain, this has serious consequences because this shapes how British people viewed the the, the prospects of going to war against the Turks in 1914. Uh, and as previously mentioned, Britain's in for a few shocks. Another reviewer commented, the fact that, that the facts that he has collected will be of the highest value uh, when the settlement of the Eastern question comes to be undertaken. The Caliph's last heritage helped earn Sykes the nickname the Mad Mullah across Whitehall, um, a place on a committee considering the future of the Middle East, and now a summons to number 10 to, to address the Eastern question, the long-winning argument over who would take over when finally the, the Ottomans collapsed, uh, and to which the British and the French were each certain that they were the only answer. Okay, so we're going to take a take a pause. That I really want to return to this book. It's uh, it's a superb history, um, and perhaps we'll look at that in the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm doing as well. I teach at an online school called Kings in Time. This is not an advert for them, and they don't pay me. Well, they pay me my wages as a teacher, but they're not paying me to mention them. But I have some great students there, and I'm doing a kind of an extra thing for them in the next few weeks. It's a little little experiment, and if it works out, we'll do more of it. So um, in the next few days, I'm going to record a, a, essentially a study lesson. Now, feel free, everybody, wherever you are, uh, if you are studying um, fascist Italy, to listen along and use it to make notes and use it in whatever way you want. But just letting you know, there'll be a, an extra recording. It might be an extra one every week or fortnightly going out. Uh, and I'll sort of number it and label it and so that you, you don't kind of confuse it with my, the, the general uh, sessions that I do. 
Um, but we'll be covering a couple of topics this year, mainly fascist Italy and Stalinist Russia. But we'll sort of be doing it in a more structured study guide kind of way. So if that's useful to you, give us your feedback. I'd love to know what you think and, um, you know, maybe we'll do more of that kind of thing. Anyway, thanks very much. Uh, thanks to everyone that sponsors us on Patreon. We've got uh, some really, really great, generous backers there. You know, very, very grateful to you all. Uh, do remember to swing by the Explaining History Facebook group. I'll be putting some new stuff up there soon. And um, if I can gouge the time out next week, going to be doing a bit of writing. And, of course... Um, do subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is, is, is flourishing at the moment. We've got a whole uh, eleven hundred subscribers, which you know doesn't, doesn't sound like a lot, but um, it is. Anyway, thanks very much. I've gone on far too long. Have a great week, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. All the best. Bye bye. <laughs>Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.